Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Improving health care through architectural design. At first glance, it might not seem as important as dealing with resistant infections, working on preventing readmissions to the hospital, or helping with healing, but believe it or not, these are intertwined, and one won't happen without the other. Gary Marshall, architect and uh, architect extraordinaire of some of our well-known buildings here in the islands, is the director of healthcare and has received the evidence-based design accreditation and certification from the Center for Health Design. This is a unique qualification that reflects his almost five decades of experience in creating master healthcare facilities. He's worked at the Stanford Medical Outpatient Center and even some places here locally. Now, he's on his way to Okinawa, so he's here in the studio today for a live recording of our conversation on how healthcare facilities can be designed to minimize medical errors, reduce infection, improve healing, reduce noise, and provide a better environment for today's healthcare needs. So I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. Gary Marshall, welcome to The Body Show. Well, thank you, Kathy. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, and it's quite unique. You know, often on the show we talk about specific medical conditions, but the overarching theme of what's going on in medicine is that there's a lot of changes to becoming more patient-centered, patient-focused. And a lot of that has to do with the perception of care and also satisfaction in care. And some of that is on my shoulders. You know, you need to do the right thing for the right patient at the right time. But sometimes that requires an environment that is conducive of doing so. And that environment can be structured such that it can actually reduce things like infection. And a big one, just a couple of uh, maybe a week or two ago, there was the report that came out about how common medical errors are. We've all heard about these disastrous things like removing the wrong leg or transplanting the wrong organ. But sometimes it's really simple. You know, how many times when I see a patient, their right is my left and their left is my right. And when I'm doing my notes, I have to think to myself, okay, I'm the patient. Which hand was it? I mean, something so simple that it's just direction really can have an impact on what you order as far as testing and what happens subsequently from there. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And I'm curious, this is this is really an intriguing concept of how you could set up an architectural design to minimize errors. And I've been in hospitals in the mainland that are absolutely fantastic, well-designed, brand new. I did my training at the Mayo Clinic. They've got a really good handle and design there. Then I've been in hospitals in the mainland that are not. Older buildings, older older environment. And, And so, you know, we kind of have a little bit of both here in the islands. I'm curious, you've spent a lot of years in dealing with architecture of healthcare centers. How would you describe bad design? What are some things that you know from your experience definitely just don't work? A very good question. Um, I don't. I think we probably don't like to think of it as bad design, but but I think the evidence-based design movement that you alluded to a moment ago, of, of for which I was recently accredited, um, is. A movement that is now about 15 years old in a formal sense and was kind of developing slowly for 15 years or so before that. And the real essence of that is um, to bring 
to the creative design process, some, and we don't pretend it's all, of the kind of scientific rigor that, that medical research has and has to have, um, before evidence-based design, um, in, in all the years I've been practicing, um, we and our clients, for that matter, who we partner with when we design healthcare facilities, really were designing on some combination of the basis of our collective past experience, which, frankly, in some cases may have been great, but in other cases may not have been great. But you know, people are comfortable with doing things the way they've done them before, uh, and, and just and creative intuition that design people bring to the table. And we certainly don't want that to go away. We're not, you know, in any way suggesting that it would. But it has been lacking a certain rigor. And and I have had experiences over my career where I've had, or my colleagues that I've been working with have had an idea that we thought might be a kind of a new and creative thing that we wanted to bring to a project that we were working on. And um, quite often, all too often, perhaps from our point of view anyway, uh, the healthcare facility would say, well, has anybody done that before? The answer is perhaps probably no. No one has. Uh, what will that cost us? Uh, and cost, of course, is always an important issue. We don't. We could certainly understand that. Uh, but, it, but cost is usually looked at historically and still quite often in first cost terms and not looking at what, what the benefit of some, doing something up front might be. A crew. So I'm giving you kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I think it sets the background for other things we may talk about uh, during this hour. Um, so the evidence-based design process has, has slowly but surely started to put some rigor. There are currently now several hundred, I don't know the exact number, I think upwards of perhaps 500 people nationally who are accredited, uh, architects, interior designers, across the whole spectrum of people who are involved in designing healthcare facilities. And there are, I checked recently, something like 2,500 uh, published, peer-reviewed kind of reports in the, in the scientific kind of model that have been developed carefully uh, and are, are, have been published and are in a repository primarily at the Center for Health Design that you mentioned a moment ago. So this is all about making... Basing design, I think the way that evidence-based design is defined by the Center for Health Design is the process of making uh, uh, credible decisions based on credible research to ensure that you get the best outcomes. So very much like, albeit somewhat simpler, medical research. Uh, and, And that all helps us make better decisions as we move forward. Uh, and, and not make bad decisions. I think if we made bad decisions in the past, they were simply because we didn't know, and the and the you know the effect of doing certain things wasn't studied. Um, well, and I think about some previous experience I've had. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily with a negative intent. When I was a medical student, I spent some time in the Philadelphia VA hospital, and at the VA hospital at the time. This was back in the 90s. They still had the big room with like 50 patients in it. Yes. It was literally the old ward. And so their theories on doing that, um, well, space constraints, but they also camaraderie and people could, you know, help take care of one another. When you looked at it from that perspective, patients were, there was minimal privacy 
a couple of TVs in the corner, lots of noise, not really conducive to a healing environment. But people were there, and they did well, and it was the way things were always done. Now, to their credit, they don't have that type of award anymore. While I was still in school, they closed it and changed it so that people would have more privacy. It seemed to be common sense that people would think, boy, if you want to stop the spread of an infection, you should probably have people in their own room. And so that that kind of makes sense. And intuitively, we'd say, yeah, absolutely. Then when we talk about evidence-based, it's when we say, okay, if we actually look at infection spread, we can prove that this actually is true. So it's taking a, a, a more, I would say, creative but common sense approach to a problem saying, how can we maybe look at this differently? Let's give people their own room, one room or two patients to a room really can minimize some of those things like infection spread, loud noise, less rest, etc. A lot of different things. So I would say the old ward where 50 patients were in one space, in one big open air room, probably bad design. We have learned since then yes. the reasons why. And at the time it was done, it was okay then. That was the modus operandi of that era. That's how we did it. And we have moved forward and changed to a different design that is more focused on individual patients, their specific condition, their health care, et cetera. So now, actually, a lot of hospitals, and the one I work at is like this, have private rooms only with the intention that you can limit spread of infection, provide more privacy, help treat conditions in a confidential environment, et cetera. But that's just where we've evolved to. Nothing bad about where we've been. We've evolved to a new place. Okay. Are there any other examples you can think of where something that we used to do worked then, but if we just modify it a little bit, how much better it can work now? Well, one of one of the things that comes to mind, and you mentioned it uh, <clears throat> briefly a moment ago, is noise. Uh, noise is sort of inherent in the healthcare environment, particularly in the acute care hospital environment. Uh, hard to avoid, lots of people moving around, uh, trolleys and gurneys clattering up and down hallways, uh, alarms going off. Um, and so there has been a an increased appreciation of, of the negative impacts of that. There have been any number of those evidence-based design uh, research initiatives that I mentioned a moment ago that have focused on noise and, and have shown... Um, the positive benefits of that. Um, and so that is getting a lot more attention in, in healthcare design. We, we still do have a challenge uh, that you mentioned earlier in our, in our pre-conversation about carpeting. Carpeting is a wonderful way to contribute to making environments less noisy. Uh, it quiets footfall. It quiets the noise of, of uh, gurneys going up and down hallways and so forth. Uh, it absorbs noise. Um, it absorbs other things, but too. it absorbs other things. Yes, very well put. Very well put. Um, and I, although the um, the carpeting industry has, I think, made big strides forward in 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 incorporating like antimicrobial things into the formulas for the carpet and so forth. It's still an issue that has yet to be ch solved, and it, and it is actually a very difficult one. I think many people are trying to figure that out. If we, if we eventually, uh, if eventually, uh, someone figures that out and can can produce a carpet, manufacture a carpet that is antimicrobial to a sufficient degree, um, that will be a big breakthrough. 
Well, and I think of other ways to reduce noise. As, as an example, carpet, yes, absolutely. You know, a lot of times healthcare professionals are told you need to wear rubber-soled shoes. So we can't wear high heels in the hospital. Not that I would ever want to wish that on anyone <laughs> to have to wear high heels in a hospital. But if you do, good for you. But that you have to have some sort of noise reduction in your footwear so that at least from the perspective of the healthcare personnel, you know, you generally see nurses wearing sneakers or appropriate footwear um, that is, is not going to make a lot of noise right. for good reason. So there, if we can't get carpet yet, we can modify our footwear. And if you go to visit someone in the hospital, not wearing the noisiest shoes that you could ever have can also help with the other people in that environment. <clears throat> I think of things like soundproofing, soundproofing walls and ceilings and even even patient rooms that's probably one of those things that because there's some soundproofing material that it's not necessarily cost prohibitive that might be another design element that can be incorporated that can help sometimes something as simple as pictures in the wall that are framed that actually can absorb some of the sound and not necessarily bare blank walls gives you something to look at but it also can help with noise reduction closing you know something uh, how radical Closing the door. Oh, my gosh. That is radical. <laughs> it is in a lot of cases, you know, because there's, there's a lot of noise outside of rooms. These days, a lot of hospitals have quiet hours. I've been at, you know, I've been at Straub, and they've said over the APA, it is now quiet hours, which ironically makes me want to be noisy, but I know I should not. It's like quiet hours in the hospital for the next two hours, really trying to help patients to have a time when they're going to dim lights, when they're going to try and avoid lots of noise. There's Medical <clears throat> equipment makes noise. We should probably change that. You know, there's a lot of different ringtones on our phones. I think we should make more calming ringtones on medical equipment. There you but go. That's a great idea. It is. But then if it's not annoying, what is our incentive to go address <laughs> to what it's trying it to alarm? <laughs> you know, if it's a nice, gentle, soothing noise, people may enjoy it. But certainly, there's certain things we can change, certain things we can't. I think you're right. Noise is a huge aspect. And another one that you mentioned just a moment ago is lighting. Um, I mean, historically, I think most uh, healthcare environments, and again, here I'm primarily addressing inpatient acute care hospitals. Um, same could be true of skilled nursing facilities and so forth that are somewhat similar, tend to have had historically, and probably many still do, a kind of one-size-all-fit thing for lighting, which means that it's as bright as it can ever be all the time. So that, you know, Surely there are obviously times when a physician or another caregiver has to examine the patient or has to look at a chart or has, you know, has to have a higher level of light. But percentage of the day-wise, that's probably not 10%. Not that much, you know, right. and, and then the other 90% of the time, the patients, and in, in a way the staff too, their work environment is this blasted high level of light, which uh, in its own way is a kind of stressor. Um, and and it makes hard it makes it harder for patients to relax. It makes it harder for them to sleep, probably. Um, so lighting there's, is another factor that's really a big one. There's and, studies and that, that prove of, it. There's evidence what, that proves that. There is evidence to prove yeah. that. Right. And and in fact, it goes as far as looking at some of our devices, some of our screens that they tell people put it on a little bit darker of a mode. That bright light makes your eyes sense <clears> that it's daytime. And so if you have a bright light on in your hospital room. That's going to make you feel like it's daytime. And if it's not daytime and you're supposed to get rest, that's not going to work out well for you. So, you know, I think about, you know, nursing homes, another place where 
bright lights really are going to have an effect on the individuals that are staying there. Yes. And one of the huge things that we can measure, objectively measure, is the use of sedatives and or other medications that are calming for people who get agitated. <clears throat> and if you can change the lighting, change the environment, change the noise level, often that can help people to feel more comfortable, need less medication. Even they've done new studies looking at pain control by just reducing the loud external environment noises and making a setting more calming, that that can even require people to use less pain medicine. There's so many different ways that I can see that the architecture and design of the space and environment can dramatically alter the outcome for the individual in ways we don't normally think of. But, you know, it's and now there's proof. Now there's evidence there to show evidence. that it actually is true. The, in effect, the evidence-based design movement that I spoke about uh, which really became a f sort of formally organized process in the early 2000s, maybe 15 years ago, approximately now, <clears throat> but really had its roots in the 80s. And in particular, the most kind of seminal thing was uh, a researcher named Roger Ulrich, who is now in Sweden, uh, but he was at Texas A&M at the time. He was an environmental psychologist researcher at the time. But uh, Texas A&M uh, is one of the few universities that in their architecture program has a health care option to focus on. There's only one or two that do. And so he was kind of connected with that. And he got the idea that having a really positive view of nature, a good view of nature from a patient room in a hospital would have beneficial effects in perhaps reducing length of stay, perhaps reducing the amount of pain medication that would be required. Um, and this is like a lot of the things that come up in evidence-based design. When you, when you talk about them, they seem so intuitive, like, well, duh. duh you know. <laughs> you know? but, but again, no one had ever really proven it. And, and uh, uh, of course, inpatient hospital rooms, like many other kinds of rooms in certain buildings, ha had have to have rooms. It's not that they could ever, excuse me, have windows. It's not that they could ever not have windows. But the code just says they have to have a window. It doesn't say, you know, what you look, wh at. What you look at. Okay, so he did a study of some post-operative uh, patients over a period of time and using, he was a kind of a scientist, so using good scientific research principles. And uh, some of the patients were in rooms that had a nice view of nature. Uh, I don't know for sure what it was, what, whether it was on the campus, something close up or a more distant view. But anyway, they had a nice It wasn't the dumpster. View. It wasn't. It wasn't the parking lot. Right. Okay. And then, and then some of the other rooms basically looked, and this often happens in hospitals, unfortunately, especially in older ones, across a sort of a, a, a light shaft or court to the wall of an, of an adjacent building, part of the hospital complex or, or I think. A blank but wall. It's sort of a blank wall, or it might have windows in it, but you'd, we're not seeing nature. nature. And then uh, I think he did this, or perhaps it was a follow-up study that someone did along the same vein. There was another option where patients looked at a, at a TV screen with a picture of nature on it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think that was a follow-up study to uh, Mr. Ulrich's study. But in any case, his study did show that the patients who had a view of nature 
real nature. Real nature did recover more quickly, did require more pain, excuse me, less pain to medication, important distinction. Um, and, and the recovery period reduction wasn't like vast, but, you know, if it was 2.3 days before, the, you know, in, in the That's worst case. That's a lot case, in the healthcare world. It might be. 2.3 hours be, could be different. It might be 2.1 yeah. or two days. It might, you know, it's a fraction sure. of a day. But when you, for any given patient, that's a positive change. Collectively, for the healthcare system who's providing care to patients, it's a huge change in aggregate. So, uh, and, and that study was really, like I said a moment ago, really, I think, was the kind, kind of, of the way, sentinel a trigger, event. A right. trigger for this evidence based design. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and I have the Director of Healthcare, Architect Gary Marshall. He has recently been accredited for evidence-based design, accreditation, and certification from the Center for Health Design. And we're talking today about how you can have an environment be more conducive to healing. Now, we've before the, we're going to take a quick break, we've been talking about institutional settings, hospitals. We're going to talk about exam rooms. We're going to talk about what you can do in your house. And so it's a combination of safety, design, healing environment, soothing environment, and we're going to hear some more about it. There's actual evidence to prove that it works. So when we come right back after this quick break, we're going to talk more. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Gary Marshall from Architects Hawaii. He has recently received certification in evidence-based design for healthcare. It's an interesting emerging field that really has helped all of us to learn a little bit more about how to create a healing environment. You know, I've sort of grown up in my career in hospitals, and it feels like a second home to me, like just the strange smells and the weird hallways. And I know that sounds... Really kind of crazy. But I, I, I nerd out. I love that kind of stuff. 
But that's not for everybody. And other people have this sort of sense when they go into a hospital of being absolutely intimidated. Lots of corridors, lots of hallways, lots of noise, lots of things going on. How can we make that environment more conducive to healing? That's what we're talking about today. And before my buddy Gary heads off to Okinawa that he's doing on Monday. We have recorded this show so we can play it on Monday. Keep everything current. So I appreciate, Gary, you being here and taking some time before your trip. And that's why we're not doing callers today. But certainly any questions you have can be emailed to the station and we'll communicate and get back with an answer if we have one that we can share with you. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about how to create a conducive environment to healing that has that has to do with noise and a view of nature and, and just having things set up in such a way that it makes people feel more calm instead of more agitated in a variety of different settings. Now, there's another concept that, that, we, that we think about in hospitals and has to do with the way that people function. Now, I would say I've heard statistics. I think it's like 80, 85 percent of people are right-handed. 15, 20 percent of people are left-handed. Some people are ambidextrous. Yay for them. Um, so there's also a, an idea of, of having a certain dominant side, having things set up in a way that is conducive for people, particularly if you are left-handed or if you are right-handed, having things set up in an environment so that it makes sense for you. What is the evidence behind the design of things like exam rooms or even operating rooms that reflect that, that particular side bias? There Again, there is emerging evidence that uh, from a standpoint of uh, operational efficiency uh, and from a standpoint of uh, reducing the potential for medical errors, that having similar room types, be they exam rooms, uh, inpatient bedrooms, operating rooms, whatever, um, be what's usually called same-handed, um, provide some real positive uh, results so that when, when, when a caregiver enters a room, everything is the same. And if they, when they go to the next room, everything will be the same. So they don't have to think twice about where to find things. They don't get confused about where something might be. Uh, it, it has really positive benefits. Um, in terms of exam, exam rooms are kind of, and I, I'm, I'm interested to get your comment on this. I have done a lot of outpatient clinic work over my career. And one thing I er- learned and was told by a physician early, early on, um, and it's, it's held up, I, I don't think any physician has ever told me differently, that when designing exam rooms, and this kind of, no one ever talked about same-handing the room, but it it amounts to this because I'm told that most physicians, when they're trained, when they're being trained to examine a patient, they approach the patient from the patient's right side. And therefore, if, Very you, true. if you design the – an ideal exam room would be designed so that the table is placed in a room – in the room in a way that supports that. It's and true. Mm-hmm. if you follow the classic pattern, which is usually driven – of mirroring rooms, um, which is frankly driven by uh, what's proven to be not so actually compelling uh, savings in plumbing cost, usually, well, frankly. Uh, you know, uh, I can see how that would be a, uh, you that know, would that, be a saving, that, The right? theory was 
I think, and no one really paid attention to the idea that there's, from a, from a treatment point of view, there's a reason to have exam rooms handed in a certain way so that the exam table would always be in a certain way so the physician would always approach in a certain way. Uh, so lacking that, just mirroring them made sense because they, they all have sinks. And if you mirrored the rooms, you could put the sinks kind of back to back and then sure. you'd have a little less plumbing. And, and okay, you save you know, a, a bit of money up front, but you, over the 30, 40 years or whatever, you know, how long that facility lasts, it basically isn't designed as well as it could be. So you're right about about physicians learning how to examine patients from a certain side. And it has, you know, well, what I remember from school is that it has to do particularly with how you do the cardiac exam because you need to be able to do an exam such that you can palpate certain areas and you can listen to certain areas. And it's more conducive when you reach across the chest than when you're right next to the chest. So if you come in on the left-hand side, you may not be able to do the same sort of examination with the same the same way that you're used to. In addition, also, when you come to the left-hand side, your right hand doesn't have as much space to reach across. So there's there's a variety of different medical reasons why we are all trained a certain way. But it's curious because you're absolutely right. When I think to my initial exam rooms, when I first started practicing, I was practicing in an older portion of a building. And that building had been redesigned several times to include these exam rooms. They were all very different, and the beds were on different sides. And it took some getting used to because you're just not used to examining a patient from that side. It just, it felt weird. And then you got used to it and you were fine. And then about, uh, boy, about, I guess, nine years ago or so, I moved to a different area of the hospital that had been renovated. And so everything is very much the same. The mirror image exam rooms or even just the beds are in the same location. The, the supplies are all in the same location. You can always approach the patient from the certain side. And it just made things so much easier and more efficient. And occasionally, I see folks in the older side of the hospital, and I feel sort of out of sorts. And I feel like, oh, this isn't where I normally keep all my stuff, right where it belongs, right where it goes. And I feel like like, 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 like I'm an old person, like I'm stuck in my ways, and I can't change, because if it's not that way, I don't know what to do. But, but you have to adapt. And so from an efficiency standpoint... It makes sense to have everything streamlined. From my own comfort level and also just taking care of patients, I like to have everything in the same place, in exam rooms, etc. In an optimal world, it would always look the same for everybody. However, realistically, we've got a lot of older buildings here in the islands, and that makes it more difficult to, to provide that sort of consistency because of that aspect. You'd have to redesign the whole inside. In some cases, it's possible. In some cases, not not so much. So you're right. There's reasons why we do it that way. And there's there's. I'm happy to see that there's evidence to show that it could be done better. And I'm curious, how could it be done better? One of my big focuses that I have been thwarted on multiple times is that I really think we should have more nature in healthcare environments. Like we talked about before our, our first break, we talked about the view outside the window. What about just having plants in exam rooms? And I'm told, you know, dirt and all these sorts of things. But, boy, just having nature around in a healing environment just kind of makes sense to me. Has some of the evidence that they've looked at incorporated looking at that as well? Um, it, it has. I, I I must say that I think the the idea of having plants in act, actually inside of patient care environments is still 
Is it foreign to you? Pretty, pretty foreign to most of our the clients I've talked to about things like that. They're, they're, however, I'm going to go rogue. I'm going to go buy a bunch of orchids at like Costco or Sam's and bring them in and see what happens. And I'll do my own little end of one study to see if anyone gets upset. Well, good. Maybe I can participate. We can make it an right. evidence-based design study. Okay. We'll make it a design study. Uh, but there is a lot there uh, for some years now. There has, and it kind of ties into the, the to the view of nature, but also more tangibly, and uh, to the extent. That patients uh, can uh, say when they're recovering, or maybe in a skilled nursing facility or a long-term care facility where they can move around, be it ambulating or in a wheelchair, of having what are commonly called healing gardens in hospital environments, so outdoor areas that they can go to uh, that have plants, usually water features, uh, sometimes even a little soft music playing in the background. Sure. Um, that is something that has uh, become fairly commonplace in the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, even landscape architects who've kind of specialized in uh, creating healing gardens. Because it works. I mean, if you have a healing space, if you have a, a space where someone can get fresh air, I think the other thing that amazes me in a hospital, and I've talked to some some patients that are that are in the hospital and they go, I, I want to go out and get fresh air, yet they're in an enclosed environment and hospital windows generally don't open because for a variety of reasons, um, but they don't open to the right. outdoor environment. And so there's constant air conditioning. There's constant filtered air, purified air, okay, but there's still not the same thing as a nice breeze. And here we are on the islands and there's such nice breezes. Wouldn't it be nice to be out in the warm, fresh air? So- even from the perspective of having a healing garden that is designed for patients, but also designed for staff so that they can also take advantage of that healing environment. Healthcare is stressful. There's a lot of things that go on that affect the staff in addition to patients, in addition to family. And having that location just for that serenity is wonderful. I've, I've tried recently, I failed, but I'm going to try again, to get a fountain for my office. It makes those little tinkly water mm-hmm. noises. I had one. I was so excited. I built it. It leaked everywhere. So I had to return it. I have to go get another one. But just having that water feature and just some some plants or something that represents nature, to me, I feel like as a clinician, that would make the environment Oh, calmer. absolutely. It, it, it's interesting that um, – and, and I don't think it gets as much attention, even within the evidence-based design movement, if you will – uh, at times, as it perhaps should, that many of the positive things that uh, some of which we've talked about that you do that we do or can do that make it better for patients, less noise, better lighting conditions, views of nature, are also very positive benefits for s- staff members. Uh, Absolutely, and they go uh, to staff uh, satisfaction even ultimately potentially to staff retention, which is a big issue for most health care um, providing systems. Uh, so it's, it's, it, those things play benefits to all the human beings who you know, enter and use these environments, whether they're there for care or to give the care. Absolutely. I, I really I think that our traditional fluorescent lit, brightly done exam rooms or hospital rooms lend themselves to having a different experience if we're willing to look at it from a different perspective. And often the best perspective 
is unfortunately the hardest perspective, which is go be a patient. Stay overnight in a hospital, as many of you I'm sure have, and see how that feels and see what could be different and what you think would be better done differently, designed differently. You know, these days you can actually, patients can choose to not be woken up in the middle of the night unless there's some medical reason to do so, to limit being woken up for testing, et cetera, which is, which is wonderful. You can actually get some rest. Unfortunately, I know that for, for a lot of situations, for shift purposes, et cetera, everybody's gotten out of bed at like 5 a.m. and weighed. I don't know what could be more depressing, being woken up at 5 a.m. <laughs> or being put on a scale at 5 a.m. Either one of those to me just sounds horrible. I don't want it to I happen. I agree. What is, there, what is it about 5 a.m. that makes it the ideal time of day to be weighed? You know, and I've, and I've, and I've asked people, and, and part of the reason why that happens, and there's logistic reasons in hospitals and nursing homes, et cetera, is because if you have a large number of people who need a wait and you have to get it done before shift change <clears throat> at 7, uh-huh. then you need to have all this data done. Because shift change is a whole different process, and the handoff of patients is a very delicate operation. So you don't want to wait until later. They might be off at testing, et cetera. But even for, even for physicians, ordering a daily wait, if I really need to know a daily wait of a patient, okay. If I'm making medical decisions about it, okay. But otherwise, why do it? Maybe you don't need to do that every single day, certainly not at 5 a.m. These days, and I know Kaiser Permanente, the hospital in Wanalua had actually started this. And then I think Straub Hospital does it. I think Queens does as well, which is meals on demand. So instead of yes. you have meals that occur at this hour, here's your tray, like it or lump it. It may look lumpy. Here's what you're going to eat for lunch. You know, now it's actually you can craft your own menu and have it delivered when you're hungry or order it and it comes up 20 minutes later. It doesn't have to be this standardized, you fit into the mold of everyone else. It's you create what it is that you need most for your health experience. And that was that was like, it's one of those things where I go, duh, why didn't we do it all the time? But yet it wasn't part of the norm. It wasn't how we did right. things. But it really can help change someone's <clears throat> perception of healing. And it actually can make them better if they can eat, when they're hungry, food that they like. I mean, from from my uh, non-medical but ex- involved in medicine all my career point of view, I mean, what do you hear patients say when they come out of hospitals more often than oh, not? The, the food. food was horrible. Right. You know? yes. And uh, uh, Cedar sinai was, I think, one of the first, if not the first, to start menu choices and that kind of thing about 25 years ago. And uh, I, I don't think it's become – Fully widespread, but it's not that unusual now. And I, and I think you're right. It it makes a big difference to patients. It gives them a – patients feel when they're in, especially in hospitals, that they've lost control of their life, and which they kind of have. And yeah. kind of to some extent have to. But there are some things that could happen, and food is, is one of those things, where they could be – made to feel a little less like they're losing control of their life. And, and to the extent that that happens, they, they feel remarkably better about the whole experience. Again, 
leading towards greater patient satisfaction, but also improved levels of care. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Gary Marshall. He is from Architects Hawaii, and he has recently received certification for something that it sounds like we need to do a lot more, evidence-based design in healthcare. How can we create a healing environment and actually structure it such that it can help people to get better sooner with less medication. It can be done. And a lot of people are looking at how we use too many pain pills. What if we didn't need pills? What if we needed better design of the environment? How interesting and how incredibly effective. And now there's evidence to prove that it works. When we come back, we're going to talk about some simple things people can even do in their own home. Looking at the evidence that we've seen in healthcare environments, how can you make your own home similar, particularly if you have a loved one who needs healthcare, but also just to make it more conducive for grandma or grandpa who might have some troubles because they're getting older? What can we do to make their environment safer, serene, and more secure for them as well? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we have a special show here. We have Gary Marshall. He's from Architects Hawaii, and he has a very unique job. He helps to design evidence-based changes in the environment of healthcare facilities. And that just to me is intriguing, that the, the environment in which I work in could be more conducive to people healing if I were to do certain things to help that to happen. Doesn't require prescription medicine, doesn't require a lot of major, it could be major changes, it could be something subtle, that I could create a better healing environment for the people I come in contact with. It sounds like a great idea, and there are some easy principles that we can start. And before the break, you know, Gary and I were talking about how I'm going to go rogue, just going to bring plants into my office. We'll design it so that we can we can test it. I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I'm just I'm going to go rogue and bring in some orchids because they live a long time and I don't generally kill them. Or bamboo. You know, because that lives a long time too. I need a plant. I'm really good at taking care of people. Plants are not necessarily my thing. So I need a hardy plant. 
maybe spider plants. I hear it's really hard to kill one of those that, you know, they last forever. So I've got to think of a plant that could work really well for me. That would be healing in my environment and, and not a cactus because I'll water them. I swear I might overwater a cactus. You never know. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about ways that we can improve the design of exam rooms, of spaces, of, of bringing nature into it. Now, there are some, there are some interesting research that's been done on patients having their own room. And at the, at the top of our show, we talked a little bit about when I worked in a VA, there were like 40 or 50 people in a literal ward and how now we're looking at putting people in their own room as much as possible for a variety of reasons, infection control, noise control, et cetera. What's special other than the medical aspect of privacy? What else is special that has been looked at from the design aspect of single patient rooms? Well, again, the, the trend... Uh, in the U.S. towards uh, single-patient rooms, which are now much more common, not completely prevalent by far, but as new hospitals are built, it, they are becoming much, much, much more common. <clears throat> uh, that began uh, maybe even as, as far back as the late 60s, but it was, it was considered pretty radical, like your idea of bringing a plant into a Healthcare I might get in trouble. <laughs> I have a feeling somebody's coming um, to my office Tuesday. But, but like, it, it, was, it. It, it was it was it began back then, and uh, at the time, and, and until I think until the evidence based design movement started to look at things in other ways, the the primary driver for that was efficiency for the hospital. The argument for doing it, which was that you can maintain a higher uh, percentage of occupancy because if you have multiple patient rooms. And we don't have a lot of big wards anymore, but we two patient rooms are very common and, and rarely three or four patients. Um, you have issues with sex incompatibility or disease incompatibility or just social incompatibility. So um, hospitals in those situations are always forced to transfer patients around. Sure. There's a lot of juggling. Juggling. So there's, you know, patients get discharged every day. New patients come in and they're trying to uh, take care of all of them, of course, uh, and do that as efficiently as they can, but they can't put uh, a man in a room with a, a woman. Um, we may get there someday, but we're not there yet. So that creates uh, a challenge, and so they're, they're transferring patients around all the time. Now, that wouldn't happen if, if all the rooms were single occupancy, Sure, but they still aren't. Uh, but so by creating single patient rooms, and again, the, the initial driver to do that, and it was kind of a hard sell, but little by little, healthcare institutions started to buy into it, was that it really did go to their bottom line because they could get higher uh, occupancy rates. However, what it also turns out, and this is, again, one of those evidence-based design things that's kind of like, well, yeah, uh, that having single patient rooms really helps in a lot of ways. It, it reduces the opportunity for uh, healthcare-acquired infections. Absolutely. That, that, ha that, that is a big deal, unfortunately. Uh, so it reduces that possibility. And as far as medical errors and medication errors, um, it, it definitely reduces those because, again, if you're what would happen in the past when you're transferring patients around, a physician comes in and orders a, a medication for the for the patient in bed B in room 207, and 
by the time that medication gets to bed B in room 207. That's a different patient. There might be a different patient in that bed. Sure. In fact, it happens all the time. There's a di- now, that doesn't mean that every time that happens, nobody catches it. And because now, especially in the last decade or so, because we have such uh, strong information technology links between departments in the hospital we, and so we forth. We barcode patients. Yeah, it's less. We, it's, we scan you like frankly, we you, right? a lot less likely to happen than it than it would have been even ten years ago. But still, having single patient rooms just eliminates eliminates them. that mm. almost 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 yeah. I mean, at least it eliminates the possibility of giving some other patient's medication to the wrong patient. Uh, it doesn't prevent other potential medical errors, but it, it's, a, it's a big contributor. Well, I think the other thing that single patient rooms lends itself to is that I know, you know, when my brother had a, uh, my older brother had a surgery a couple of years ago, and he was at Cleveland Clinic. And so I- Great place, by the it's way. It's a fabulous yeah. place. World Very class. well designed. So he was having a heart surgery, so he was in the cardiac area. And in their exam, I mean, in their hospital rooms, every room was was single patient. But they also had this real interesting, it was almost like a pull-out couch slash bed. Now, it wasn't so comfortable that I wanted to stay there all the time, but it was such that you could pull it out. You would have, it was like bench seating that, you know, family members, should they want to stay, were told you could stay overnight. And that concept of having space and room for your loved one definitely has been proven to help heal. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, these days, even in smaller exam rooms that don't have this bench seating, there's a chair that can be turned into a bed if a family member needs to stay with their loved one. And if their loved one speaks another language or feels uncomfortable in the hospital or is you know, scared at night. Sometimes having that other person makes all the difference in the world, even just to help alert the nurses they're getting out of bed. They need to go to the bathroom and get the extra help that they need so that somebody's not there in the dark alone saying, oh, no, where am I? I'm getting confused, getting up and falling, even just for fall prevention. So it was a very well-designed room that they had that had plenty of space for his stuff, plenty of space for family to come in and to spend extended periods of time in the exam in the ho- in the hospital room with their loved one and it had also an individual patient bathroom. Shared bathrooms is one of the potentials, but individual bathrooms is always preferred. Much better. Much better. And individual shower, et cetera. I mean, it really had a very nice setup. It was a modern hospital designed that way. So that privacy element Even just getting down to you're only going to tell certain things to your doctor if nobody else can hear it. You know, emergency rooms these days are being redesigned because although just pulling a curtain is easy and convenient, pulling a curtain does not provide any privacy from hearing what the person on the bed next to you had. And you're like, wow, that guy, I heard he does whatever. And Hawaii is such a small island. You never know who's in the bed next to you. And what did you learn that you shouldn't about your uncle's <clears throat> friend's cousin? You know, you just never right, know. Right. So certainly from the perspective of even emergency rooms, they're trying to make that a much more confidential environment for loads of different reasons infection confidentiality medical release all these sorts of all these sorts of concepts let's take it home so we think about single patient rooms in hospitals let's take it to the home you know grandpa lives in his house and he lives with his family and he has a bunch of other people there grandpa should have his own room 
because that way he can have his own environment. What are some other simple things that people could do even in their house now that could help create this healing environment similar to the evidence that has been studied in hospitals? Good question. Um, I would say that, uh, first of all, I think with with elderly people, and I'm sort of getting to be one myself, so I I say Don't look a day over 29. I say that gently. Um, Falls are a big issue. Uh, Falls in healthcare environment are a serious thing that we could talk about on another occasion that evidence-based design has looked at. But uh, I would first look at anything I could do to reduce the possibility of falls. So somewhat like a hospital, I would look at putting uh, handrails uh, between the bed area so that grandpa could get out of bed immediately Grab onto grab something. to a rail, sure. not have to go four feet before he gets to it, but or it's like right find, there. Find his cane. And then literally follow go. that, if you will, to the door to the bathroom and into the bathroom because that's going to be one of, you know. And then take that throughout the house as much as it's practical and, and to the extent of where grandpa's range of travel is going sure. to be. So, and, you know, taking steps to make sure that grandpa has minimal chance of falling, uh, avoiding Obvious things like loose rugs or anything that would, again, contribute to that. Um, I would look at... Um, grab bars in bathrooms. Grab bars in bathrooms. And do not... You're extending into the bathroom, Don't install them yourself. Get a professional. No, with proper backing so they hold up when someone really needs to put their weight on them. Well, and my lovely older brother, who we just talked about him going to, to have surgery, he once tried to put in a handicapped bar in my parents' house. And he's he's actually really mechanical, so I was kind of surprised, but it just came pulling right out of that wall, and I went, that's why we hire a professional. But, you know, truthfully, as much as you think you can do it and it looks really simple, you've got to know a lot about how to really structure that bar in such a way that it's going to be maximally supportive, of not course. pull out of the wall, be in the studs or whatever else you have to put it in the wall. I know my limits. I can't do that. Um, but certainly... Create that particularly slippery surfaces, bathrooms, slippery, you know, try and get some flooring that is not going to be something you'll slide on if it gets wet. Right. Just simple right. stuff. But the same concept that you guys have looked at in hospitals can be applied in the home. Put a plant in grandpa's room because I'm all over that and I'm going to put plants everywhere. I'm hoping they don't hate me and die because I'm <laughs> not so good with plants, but I'm going to try. Orchids are hardy. You just can't overwater them, I've heard. I can work on that. Put Um, nature in the home. You talked about sort of, and and I think from an architectural standpoint, have a doorway that's big enough that grandpa can fit with his walker, or even if in the future a wheelchair is needed, design it right to begin with so that should you ever have that need, you don't have to make huge changes to your house. Even if it's something along the lines of have a ramp instead of a lot of stairs, if possible. Just to have that ease of access mm-hmm. can make a huge difference. Well, trying to trying to give Grandpa a um, uh, an environment, uh, uh, you know, to whatever extent his range within that house is, whether it's the whole house or part of it, that is safe, and that does mean pre- helping prevent falls. 
making getting around easy. As good point about wheelchair access, if you, you may have to put in wider doors, which is not always easy to do, uh, if that occurs, I would look at things like um, uh, putting temperature controls on the hot water system. That's a really good point. I wouldn't have thought about uh, it. In in healthcare environments, that's often done as a routine thing. Um, it is not that expensive to do on a one-off basis in a home to get a tempered water so that the water can't exceed you know 115 or 120. Sure, it can't a burn safe people. Right. To avoid, uh, I, there's. Uh, a lot of evidence that uh, either older people or people with dementia problems or whatever, you know, they're not aware of what they're doing. They'll turn on the hot water full on, and if it's coming out of the tap at 170 degrees, they can get scalded. They do Absolutely. get scalded. Sure. So that's that's the thing I'd look at. I would look at um, I would look at I would look at things from kind of an ADA standpoint. Um, sure, American. For example, are. if you if you have the opportunity to do it or can do it. Uh, quite often, countertops in bathrooms or in kitchens are higher than ADA standards, and those ADA standards are not didn't get to be what they are by accident. They just work better if they were researched two or three inches A lower than the typical, right. and it makes it easier to use the 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 uh, the sink or do whatever you're doing on that. I, I'd look at doing things like that. Uh, I. I the things we talked about in terms previously earlier today, in terms about noise, that's and, true, and and, and light careful exposure. lighting controls, yeah, giving giving options, making sure that there's can be enough light when there needs to be, much like a healthcare environment, but that there's dimmers on things, sure, uh, night so lights, comfortable. You know, quiet. you don't need to just be seven years old and have one with Barbie on it. I think I did. But you can actually be <laughs> somebody true. who likes a nightlight who actually can it can help direct them at night. Because, you know, all of these things really are all about keeping people safe. Now, we have just, just a minute or so. Tell me, in your career, because it's 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 really spanned a lot of the healthcare changes and hospital changes. What do you think has been the most surprising thing that you've learned about how to recreate a healthcare environment? What's the biggest thing that just jumps okay. out at well, you? Well, I, I think the, 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 the biggest change, and now it's, it's been around for a while, so it, it doesn't seem particularly radical, but at the time it certainly did. The biggest change really is the change to patient-focused care. When I first started designing healthcare facilities 50 years ago, we were still in a mode, with all due respect to you as a physician, where the physician and other people, you know, other caregivers, sort of dictatorially said what they wanted, and that's what they got, and the patient just kind of got taken along for the ride. So most healthcare environments were, were certainly functional, but they were sterile and clinical, and um, no one really it isn't that no one cared about the patients, but no one really thought about the patients. I Not think. until they became one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> until maybe, do it. maybe that was it. So the the movement um, starting in probably in the seventies, the Plane Tree Organization is one that would be interesting to talk about. We don't have time right now, uh, but anyway, the movement towards patient centered care that that's the big change, and that has really transformed the healthcare environment, as I think it should. 
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you've been listening to The Body Show. I want to thank Gary Marshall from Architects Hawaii for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. We're going to have to do it again. I learned a lot about how to keep environments sterile and clean. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is extra hardworking David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.